0: Good morning. Good morning. Take out your Bibles and turn, actually not to Philippians, but turn to Acts chapter 16. You can find Acts 16 on the bottom of page 924 in the Pew Bible. Last week we started a new series on the book of Philippians by reading the entire book together and looking at a couple of its major themes. We're going to look at the big idea of gospel-generated joy, And we saw that Paul talks about this joy as a circumstance-independent joy, a Jesus-generated joy, and a community-creating joy. These are some of the main ideas that will take us about the next six months to unpack together in great detail. Well, the plan was to start that today by looking at the first two verses of the book, but at the beginning of the week, I decided to call an audible um, and, and change it up for this Sunday. We've now read all of Paul's letter to the Philippians, I thought it could be good then to look first at the context of that letter, to look at the founding of the church that Paul is writing this letter to. Well, that's what Acts 16 is about. It is about the planting of the Philippian church. So we're going to read about this church's beginning... And in the hope that that will help us better understand the letter as we get into it over the next couple of months. We're jumping right into the middle of an ongoing story. Acts, you may or may not know, is part of a two-part story. It's part two of the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both of them. We'll meet Luke in a second. In the very first verse of this book in Acts 1:1, Luke gives a summary statement of his gospel. He says that gospel Luke dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, the implication then is that part 2, Acts, is all about what Jesus continued. To do and teach. Now, through his apostles working in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, this book is not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. And then, before Jesus' ascension at the beginning of the book, he gives a sort of thesis statement structuring the rest of it in verse 8. He tells his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Right. Acts is about the spread of the gospel and the creation of the church. It starts in Judea. We start focused on Peter as the gospel spreads among the Jewish people. Then it begins to spread to the Samaritans. And then as we pick up the story in Acts 16, it's now on its way to the ends of of the earth, as the story has shifted to now focus on Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. We're picking up in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey, and chapter 16 is particularly significant because as Paul crosses over the Aegean Sea to Macedonia and plants this church in Philippi, the gospel now, for the first recorded time, has gone to Europe. We're now in a new phase as the gospel continues to spread west and churches continue to be planted in new places. We want to see how churches start. We want to see particularly how the first church in Philippi started to better help us understand this letter that we're going to spend so long in. Plus, obviously, we are a church. And something that I've been trying to emphasize a lot lately is that we need to know what that actually is. Means There's a whole lot of people who go to church, especially back where I'm from. There's a lot of people who go to church, but not a lot of people that can tell you what church is. And if you can't really know what church is, you can't rightly then know what church is for. So to know why it is that we are here, we need to know what church is. And to help us know what church is, it'd be good to look at how a church begins. Acts 16 is the perfect picture of that. So we're going to draw four big truths about the founding of the church in Philippi, but then we're also going to look at those truths in relation to us here at at Woodside. If we want to see and experience gospel-generated joy from Philippians, then I think it could be helpful to see that the Philippian church itself is a gospel-generated church, which means that Woodside is a gospel-generated church. And that simply means that God does it. All of it. Like, all of this is a testimony to God's faithfulness. So I want us to look at four things that point to Him and to His working in the church. We're going to look at God's providence in the planting of the Philippian church, then we're going to see God's initiative, then God's power, and we'll close by looking at God's grace in the planting of the Philippian church and also in the existence of the Woodside church. So we're going to see that it's all him. And as we see that it's all him, my prayer is that that would produce an overwhelming gratitude and joy in us for the wonderful gift of the church. God builds his church. That's what we just read in 1 Corinthians three. That's the sermon. That's the main idea of the whole thing. God does this thing. Let's see that and rejoice in the wonderful gift that it is. So let me look. Let's look at Acts chapter 16. It's a long chapter again. It's not nearly as long as last week, so do not fret. It's about half the length, but we're still going to break it up into parts. We'll break up the reading a little bit. We'll start off by reading verses 1 through 10. I'll read it for you, then we'll pray, and we'll jump in to the text. In the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, this is the word that he chose for you to hear today. Acts 16, verses 1 through 10. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Iconium. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Stop there and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that it is living and active. Father, we sometimes feel dead and passive. Father, wake us up. Father, the word's not the problem. I am the problem. We are the problem. Father, we desperately need you now to come and to work and to speak through your word. Father, I desperately need you to speak and to work uh, through me. Not my ability, not my preparation. Father, not anything that I can do can accomplish what it is that we need accomplished here this morning. But we know that it is all of you. So, Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Father, I ask now that your spirit would come and work through your word in this time show us Christ, uh, to grow our love for him and our love for one another. Help me and help us when we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, these first 10 verses are kind of the build-up to the planting of the church in Philippi. In the previous chapter, in Acts 15, Paul has been in Jerusalem. The first major problem that the church faced was the question of the Gentiles. What do we do With the Gentiles. It's hard for us to comprehend how difficult it would have been for the early Jewish believers to comprehend the gospel being also for these Gentiles. So the church gathers in Acts 15 in Jerusalem to sort that out. Well, the conclusion that they reach is summarized back in verse 8. We see that God gave them, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit just as He did to us, the Jewish people, and He made no distinction between us and them. Verse 11. Therefore, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. There is no difference. There is no distinction. They are all saved in the exact same way by grace through faith. And so then they determine in verse 28 to know to lay no greater burden on the Gentiles. The point is that the Gentiles don't have to become Jewish to be Christians. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the ceremonial law. Those things have passed away. Salvation comes only by grace through faith to Jew and Gentile alike. So that happened in Jerusalem. Paul then goes north back to Antioch to carry this good news to the Gentiles there. Antioch is way north above Jerusalem, almost up into Turkey. And as we read at the beginning of chapter 16, he's now gone into Turkey, into Derby and Lystra, which are in the middle of the southern part of Turkey. And there we meet one of the most important characters in the later period of the New Testament, because it's there that Paul picks up Timothy. But our focus is not on Timothy. It's not on Timothy's circumcision. Previous chapter, no circumcision. Chapter 16, Timothy gets circumcised. We're not going to unpack all that uh, right now. The point is that his, he is Jewish. His father was a Greek, so he wouldn't have been circumcised. Paul knows that Timothy is going to do a lot of ministry to Jewish people. He knows that fact would be a stumbling block to those Jewish people. So Timothy is circumcised, not because he has to be, but because he chooses. to be for the sake of the gospel. And so they continue traveling uh, to the churches, strengthening them and delivering the good news. Verse 6. Look at verse 6. They're now going further north. We're up now into central Turkey, Phrygia, and Galatia. And then notice the end. They want to turn west. That would be your direction from here, I guess. West, toward the coast. They want to go into Asia. Again, not Asia as we would use the term today, but Asia as it was used back then in the sense of Western Turkey. Why does Paul want to go to Western Turkey? Probably because that's where Ephesus is. But look at what happens. Here's the beginning of our first point. The Holy Spirit does not allow Paul to do what Paul wants to do. Paul's got a plan. God has a different plan. Paul will get to Ephesus, but not yet. And so they continue going further north through Turkey, now bearing a little bit northwest into Mysia. And then again, notice verse 7. They want to go into Bithynia. Bithynia is a hard right toward the east. Why does Paul want to go there? Probably because that's where Chalcedon and Byzantium are, two super important cities. But what happens in the verse 7? The Spirit, again, doesn't allow Paul to do what Paul wants to do. So in verse 8, they end up further west in Troas, which is basically Troy, right, just a few miles away from the ruins of Troy. Why Troas? Well, now they're on the coast of the Aegean Sea. Why Troas? Because of verse 9. Look at verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. That's why we are now in Troas. Now, just as a side note, right, we have to be careful with the book of Acts. Acts is a hugely important book, but we have to understand the nature of Acts as a transitional book. Jesus has now ascended. The Holy Spirit has now descended. But the church is not yet established. There is yet no New Testament. And so the transitional nature of this period means that there are often things that happen in Acts that aren't necessarily normative for the church today. You probably heard this described in terms of descriptive language and prescriptive language. Just because something is descriptively described for us doesn't mean that it is prescriptively prescribed for us. So because of the nature of Acts, just because Paul receives visions, that doesn't then mean that we're supposed to be waiting around to receive visions. I never received a vision of a man of New York City standing there urging me saying, come up to New York City, to help us. The closest I got was Pastor Ed Moore standing at my door, a man of New York City saying, "Hey, come up to New York City to help us." Now that we have the word, a supernatural and living and sufficient word. Now that we have the church, both as the means through which God speaks and works, in the world we're no longer looking for things like this. Look to the word. But Paul does receive this vision, and then notice his response in verse 10. Immediately, he sought to go to Macedonia. God calls, Paul responds, God commands, Paul obeys. And then notice one other thing about verse 10. It isn't actually, he sought to go into Macedonia. What's it say? It says, we sought to go into Macedonia. That's the first we In the book of Acts, that's the first first person plural, not he, but we. So why also does God direct all these things to Troas? Because it appears that it's in Troas that Paul picks up Luke. The author and the narrator of our story is now with Paul. He's no longer just reporting what Paul had done. He's reporting what he himself has done with Paul. Luke is on the scene. We go into Macedonia. The gospel is now crossing over into European soil for the first time. So all of that running through those first 10 verses is just to get us to our first point, which is the providence of God in the planting of the church in Philippi. What is that word? What is the providence of God? Well, At the very heart of Reformed theology is a robust idea of the absolute sovereignty of God. What is sovereignty? Sovereignty is a function of kings. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he is the king over all things. And that means that he rules and he reigns over all things. That means that we confess that God always does what he pleases. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that God plans and he ordains all things. We mean that God decrees all things. Right. So I've quoted you a number of times. We like to use uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's just brilliant and short and succinct. Our girls have been working on it some. Uh, Question 7. It's just a kind of a summary of belief and question and answer to help you memorize things. Question 7 says, if the sovereignty of God is about him decreeing all things... Question seven says, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal plan based on the purpose of his will by which for his own glory he has foreordained everything that happens. Right. So we're saying that God decrees, God plans, God ordains everything that happens ahead of time. But how does he then carry out? How does he execute that plan? How does God actually work? The very next question of the Catechism tells us. Next question, eight. How does God carry out his decree? God carries out his decrees in creation and providence. That's how God works. We understand creation. What's providence? Well, question 11 says, what is God's providence? God's providence is his completely holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing every creature in every action. The 1689, which we're studying in Sunday school, said God upholds, He directs, He arranges, and He governs all creatures and all things. All right, so in creation, God starts everything. In providence, God sustains everything. God directs, He upholds, and He governs. He has a plan. His providence is His execution of that plan, bringing things about to the end that He has decreed. He is sustaining you. He is guiding you. He is preserving you. Right. So the decree of God is His plan, and the providence is His execution of that plan. And you need to see and appreciate God's providence in the planting of the Philippians. Church. Look back down there at 7 and 8 and 10. Look at what's going on. Paul wants to go west into Asia. God says, nope, go north. Paul wants to go east into Bithynia. God says, nope, go west. Paul goes to Troas and probably wants to get to work preaching the gospel and planting a church in that important city. God says, nope, cross the sea and go north into Macedonia. It is God who is in control here. And now listen, most every Christian pays lip service to the idea that God is in control, but many don't really mean it. But here we see just how can in control he is. He is ordaining and he is constraining. Paul cannot do what Paul wants to do. Paul can only do what God wants to do. Paul has plans. God has different, better plans. And so God blocks he guides, he calls, he directs Paul exactly where he wants Paul to be. He directs Paul exactly where he wants a church, and that's Philippi. We find ourselves in Philippi because of the providence of God. And we find ourselves in Woodside because of the providence of God. Right? This church is his plan. A group of men may have gathered together and planned to start the first Baptist church of Woodside all the way back in 1880, but ultimately it was God's plan. They planned for that church, first church building to be where the Little Caesars is right now. Well, God planned for the next church building to be right here. So he had a big, loud train built over the top of that church building, right? And he forced them to move here to this spot. And we're thankful for this building and this spot. I am here because of the providence and plan of God. You are here because of the providence and the plan of God. We believe that our God is so big and that he is so powerful That he is able to guide and direct the almost infinite number of choices and decisions, the seemingly chance encounters, the big life moments, every little infinitesimally small thing that was required to get this specific hundred or so people into this specific room right now together on March 24th. That is the sovereignty and the providence of God. That's remarkable. This God is a lot bigger than we think that this God is. And listen, brothers and sisters, you personally need to see and appreciate God's providence if you are going to make it in the Christian life. Because guess what? Why is it that you are facing the particular thing that you are facing right now in your life? It's because God has specifically ordained that you would be facing that particular thing right now. No matter how difficult it may be, he is in control. But don't forget this as well. He's also good. So, if you are in Christ, whatever it is that you are facing right now that seems really, really bad, here's what you must remember. God can and will bring really, really good out of whatever that bad thing is. So that bad thing is happening. So you can either face it alone, confused, angry at God, or you can face it with God, with his people, still hurting, still sometimes confused, but confident and resting in the fact that God is good and God is in control. The doctrine of God's sovereignty and providence are wonderfully comforting truths that we all desperately need as we face this difficult, pain-filled life. Things are not out of control. All is not lost. In fact, all is specifically where God has chosen it to be at his time. And his plan is always better than your plan. Much better than my plan. That's God's providence. He plans, and then he carries out that plan. And it's God's providence that God was going to specifically direct Paul in very specific ways to get him to Philippi at that point in time and to plant a church in that city. And it is God's providence that there was a church planted here in Woodside. He wanted this, and so he did it. Let's see how he does it. Let's keep reading. Look at verses 11 through 15. So Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Alright, so they've set sail from Troas. They have now left Asia for the first time. They're crossing the northeast section of the Aegean Sea. They stop off on a small, it's a pretty cool island. It's got a giant mile-high island right in the middle of it, Samothrace. And then they land for the first time in Europe, in Neapolis, which is actually not in present-day Macedonia. or is a current Macedonia. That's not where this is. This is actually in present-day Greece. It's kind of confusing. And then they head straight for Philippi, which is an important Roman colony, and we'll talk about that fact uh, another time. Verse 13. Look at 13. This is different. Paul's plan is usually to head immediately for the nearest synagogue to start preaching the gospel there. Well, the fact that he doesn't do that implies that there is no synagogue, which implies that there are less than 10 Jewish men in this city, which is the number traditionally that was required for there to be a synagogue. So, Paul heads for the ladies, and he heads towards the river where they were gathered to pray. It is there in verse 14 that he meets Lydia from Thyatira. Interestingly, from back across the other side of the Aegean Sea in the region of Asia that Paul had just been forbidden to enter. Well, now God is bringing to him an Asian woman. Paul wanted to go to Asia. God says no, guides him to Philippi, but then brings a woman from Asia to him. That's providence. And we've already looked at providence. Now, point number two, we're looking at the initiative of God in the planting of the Philippian church. And the initiative of God in starting a corporate church starts first with the initiative of God in saving an individual sinner. Look at verse 14. This is such an important verse. I harp on this point frequently, that order matters. In math, I haven't taken a math class since I was 18. Uh, My math credit in college was the philosophy of logic. So I haven't had a math class since I was 18. I'm terrible at math. But I frequently mention that that order matters. In math, order matters matters. So you got to follow the right order of operations to get the right answer. You remember this from algebra class, PEMDAS, from algebra, please excuse my dear aunt Sally. Remember that high schoolers? Maybe you remember that. It's the order that you follow in solving a math problem. It's parentheses, exponents, multiplication and division, then addition and subtraction. It's important to go in the right order because if you don't, you'll get a completely different answer. You'll get the wrong answer. So if I have the problem, 4 plus 2 times 3, you need to write it down to figure it out. Go for it. If I just work from left to right, I'll get 4 plus 2 is 6 times 3. That's 18. Wrong answer. I have to follow the order of operations. I have to multiply the 2 and the 3 first, which is 6, and then I add that to the 4, and I get 10. The answer is actually 10. There's one problem, there's two answers, one is right and one is wrong, and it all depends upon the order. Something as seemingly innocent as going in the wrong order ends up with a completely different and wrong answer. And listen, here's the point. The order of operations is just as important when it comes to salvation and when it comes to the gospel. I don't know if you're like me, but most of us grew up being taught the same thing. We know John 3. We know that you must be born again. And so, as I was taught, and as it's often taught, we're told that you need to have faith so that you can then be born again. You believe, you have faith, and then you'll be born again. Notice the different order of operations in verse 14. Lydia, first, is a worshiper of God. That's a technical term that means that she is a Gentile woman who has, in part, embraced the Jewish faith. She's embraced the one true God, the law, particularly the Ten Commandments, without also then embracing the ceremonial aspects of the law, like clean and unclean and the dietary restrictions and all that. So she knows of God to some degree, but she doesn't know God. She doesn't know Jesus. But then notice what happens. Notice God's initiative. First in sending Paul to her, he shares the gospel. And then don't miss the last clause of 14. Here's the order. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's the gospel order of operations. That's God's initiative in the saving of sinners. God had to do something before she could do something. Now, that's basically the opposite of how it's often taught today. I grew up thinking that I bring about the new birth by my faith, have faith, and then I will be born again. And that left me very confused and very insecure. But this is showing us that God brings about our faith by the new birth. He works first. God initiates, we respond. And I've shared before how life And theology changing it was when I heard Dr. R.S.P. Sproul teach on this about 12 years ago and explain this important idea, simply that regeneration precedes faith. That just blew my mind. And it was paradigm changing. Regeneration precedes faith. The gospel order is that God brings our dead hearts back to life. We are born again. And then we belief. It's the same thing in 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ grammar is important has been born of God. You see that? It doesn't say everyone who believes in Jesus is or will be born of God. It says they already have been born of God. Right? Being born of God comes first faith follows. Your faith is not the cause of your new birth. Your faith is the evidence of your new birth, which is a gracious gift of God. And that changes everything. Order matters. God opens Lydia's heart, and then she believes. That's grace. Anything that flips that order, anything that puts what we do first, even if you try and call it faith, makes whatever that thing is a work. But that can't be this is complete, that's completely contradictory to the gospel, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and what? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is God's gracious initiative that saves sinners. And again, as long as you get the order wrong, you are never going to completely rest in and delight in the wonderfully free and full gift of the salvation of God. For so many years of my life, my struggle with insur- assurance was a result of my bad theology. It was a result of my not understanding this fact that it is God who has saved me fully and finally, period. It's not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon Christ. As long as you continue to think that your will or your choice or you're taking the first step toward God played the decisive role in your new birth, you'll never fully appreciate his grace. And you'll continue also, like I did, to struggle with joy and to struggle with assurance. But the good news is, is that it's all his work. It starts with his initiative. And since it starts with him and is dependent upon him, we just sang it. Therefore, we have confidence that he will hold me fast. Not that I will hold him fast. I'm weak. I fail every day. I'm miserable. But he will hold me fast. That's my confidence. And that's my hope. If he begins it and he ends it, I have confidence that he will see me all the way through to the end. So you need to see and savor the gracious initiative of our gracious God. He takes the initiative in saving individual sinners. And then he takes the initiative in uniting those individual sinners into a church. And so in verse 15, Lydia is baptized. My brother was coming to preach in a few weeks. I was going to ask him to preach on this chapter. But Then I realized he's Presbyterian, so I couldn't do that. Um, because here's the passage, that says, oh look, infant baptism. No, it doesn't say that. Uh, it doesn't say that at all. Uh, it says her household was baptized. Right, we have to assume um, that there are babies there or something to make that argument. It's an argument uh, from silence. I love my brother. He's going to come preach. We just disagree uh, about this thing. But apparently, others in her household believed, because they too were baptized. And every single baptism in Scripture follows faith. So her household believes as well. And then she invites Paul and his companions to come and stay with her. Uh, She's probably a a wealthy woman with a big house. um, And so this home is probably, possibly at least, the first meeting place of the church in Philippi. And God has now taken the initiative to plant that church himself. So we have the seeds of this new church. Let's keep reading. Time is our enemy. Uh, Verses 16 through 24. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Stop there. <laughs> Point number three: the power of God implanting the church in Philippi. Paul has developed a bit of a following. Not the kind of following he was hoping to develop. Uh, For many days, there is a slave girl following him around, and not just any slave girl, a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Here's what makes Bible translation interesting. We're reading an English translation of the Greek. Remember, the Bible's written in Greek. You just got a translation of it. So the question is always, how do we translate some of these parts? Well, literally there, you see that word divination. Well, literally, the word is python, like the snake. She had a spirit of divination. Python. You have to decide. How do I translate this to help English readers understand what's going on? What in the world is the spirit of Python? Well, we think snake. Well, in Greek mythology, it was more kind of like a, a dragon. Python was the protector of Delphi. Delphi was the famous spot where the oracle of Delphi, recited. And so the story goes that the god Apollo came and slew this serpent, Python, so that Apollo could take over the oracle at Delphi, which many believe to be the center of the earth. So this spirit of Python becomes associated with divination and with oracles and with a foretelling of, of the future. But what we're seeing here is not Python as a mythological serpent, but Python as a demonic spirit. So here's this girl, probably a very young girl, we're not told. But she is both oppressed by spiritual forces and then taken advantage of and used and abused by men for financial gain. That is a tragic story here. So she follows Paul around. She's proclaiming. She's saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. What's wrong with that? that? Sounds about right. But it's the source really that matters. Remember, it was always the demons in the Gospels that first recognized Jesus, and Jesus always shut them up, refusing to be proclaimed by an evil spirit. But also, to our ears, it sounds about right, but in a pagan Greek context, most would probably have heard Most High God as a reference to Zeus. And in the Greek, there's no the. It doesn't say the way of salvation. It just says proclaiming to you a way of salvation. Right? So Zeus and a way of salvation, not particularly helpful. It's somewhat vague. So in verse 18, even Paul gets annoyed. He finally is fed up. He turns to her. He actually doesn't turn to her. He speaks to the spirit and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. That's power. As she proclaims vague, general, most high God, Paul loudly and clearly proclaims the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, whom 1 Corinthians 1.24 tells us is the power of God. This powerful spirit that is completely dominating and oppressing this poor girl is nothing compared to even the name of Jesus, the one who has all power and authority. When we look at his great power in, in great detail, back a couple, my last year sometime when we were in Colossians, Colossians 1.16, we see that it was by Jesus that all things, whether thrones or dominions, powers, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's the power over all powers. So in 2.10, we read that he is the head of all rule and authority. Then in verse 15, we learn that he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So if he is the power over all power, and if he is the power that has already disarmed and shamed all evil powers, well, then we can trust him when he tells Peter in Matthew sixteen eighteen that on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I almost wrote about that verse. I want to write about that verse. The Greek doesn't say hell. It says Hades. And Hades is different than hell. So it's a very interesting verse in what Jesus is saying there. We don't have time for it now, but the main point is the same thing. The main point is that nothing, no power can stand against the church because it is Christ's church, and he is power. And that means that Woodside, that though everything culturally around us seems to be turning against us, ultimately, doesn't matter. Ultimately, no one can do anything to us because we are Christ's church. And he has promised that nothing can prevail against his church. And he demonstrates here in this verse that he has the power to back that up. He demonstrates in the Gospels that he has the power to back that up. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus doesn't teach a whole lot. Jesus does. And so Mark just begins by Jesus demonstrating his power over everything. Spirits, nature, sickness, death. He has power over all of it. That is the great and secure foundation upon which we as individuals and as a church can rest. That is where we will find confidence and hope and joy in Jesus. And not just Jesus, meek and mild, but Jesus, powerful and prevailing. I have no power to make this church what we want this church to be. We have no power to make this church what we want it to be. But in Christ, we have everything that we need. We have all power. And we must remember that as we press forward, while everything around us changes, that in Christ, nothing really changes. And this demonstration of the power of God over this spirit, the setting free of this poor oppressed slave girl, um, God's uh, just dominance over all forces, was probably a helpful reminder to Paul after what happens next. No more spirit, no more money. The girl's owners are mad. Paul and Silas are arrested. Did Luke somehow avoid this? I don't know, he doesn't say we. Luke got away, I guess, I don't know. Paul and Silas are arrested. They're dragged into the marketplace. They're stripped and beaten by a mob. Yeah, I think we, we sometimes just kind of breeze over these things. Here are two men who love the Lord and are preaching the gospel, mobbed by an angry crowd of people, stripped, naked, and beaten. I don't know if you've ever been in somewhat of a mob. It's happened to me once, kind of in a crowd that was out of control. It's a very unsettling and frightening thing. And now all of that is then directed and focused on them for harm? And the government's helping? They're beaten by the mob and the government gets them and then they're beaten by rods and then they're thrown into prison. Just seems to be a pretty regular experience for Paul. Again, no health and wealth here. Paul, Paul's experience. Remember that he writes, remember all this as we get into Philippians, that he writes that letter to Philippians from a prison in Rome, probably thinking back to some degree to this time in this prison in Philippi. Last part, let's see what happens. Let's read the rest of it. Let's read 25 through 40. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The end of Paul's stay in Philippi. And now we need multiple sermons to do even just this last part Justice, right? We're we're flying through and skipping all kinds of stuff. I just want to highlight kind of one main thing as we close. Point number four is the grace of God in the planting of the Philippian church. It's a strange scene. Why are Paul and Silas singing at midnight? In part, it's because they can't sleep. Right? Right? Their feet have been fastened in stocks. We think of like Looney Tunes where there's like the ball and then the chain and they're kind of walking around and doing their thing, but there's the ball and the chain. No, it's not like that. These things were brutal, right? The Romans were masters of torture. Often each foot wasn't locked into like a regular standing or seated position but was contorted. You can't see my feet, I don't know what I'm doing. They were contorted in some sort of weird, different position so that you couldn't get comfortable and then stuck in that position, unable to move. After a while, those muscles would then lock up and the pain would be unbearable and sleep would be impossible. So they sit. I, I, I don't have any frame of reference for this, but we're doing Philippians in part for my own sake, because I want to understand this. We need to remember this as we work through Philippians, as we studied gospel-generated joy. Paul is not blowing hot air. Paul is practicing what he preaches. I want to practice what he preaches, so I'm preaching what he preaches. He calls us in that letter to rejoice even in the midst of difficult circumstances Well, he's doing it. Thus, this must be a circumstance-independent joy because he is an agonizing pain. This must then be a Jesus-generated joy because nothing else makes sense. This scene doesn't make any sense apart from Christ. And as we're about to see, it's also a community-creating joy because the impact this joy is gonna have on those around him. Guys, I want, and I want us to understand this. Some of you are facing terrible circumstances. Some of you are facing difficult things. We we don't wanna minimize those things. Sometimes I face minimally difficult things, and it's sometimes devastating, and then I see Paul, and I'm just humbled, and I'm both convicted and encouraged. Your circumstances do not define you. Your circumstances do not determine your relationship with the Lord. What we desperately need God to do through the book of Philippians is to take my eyes and your eyes off of your immediate circumstances, whatever those may be, and put them on Him and on your ultimate and eternal circumstances. That's the only way any of this makes sense. Paul is in misery singing psalms and hymns in praise. God. And so then God demonstrates again his great power. He sends a very unique earthquake that opens the doors and the chains of the prison. Verse 27, the jailer sees the open doors. I'm in prison and the door's open. I'm out, right? I'm I'm going. So the jailer assumes the worst, prepares to kill himself, because that's what would have happened to him anyways if he loses these prisoners. Paul stops him, cries out, everyone's still here. Again, not just Paul and Silas but the other prisoners as well. Why? Probably because they've been listening to Paul and Silas, so everyone sticks and stays. He hasn't lost the prisoners. And then in verse 30, we'll close with this. The jailer, obviously shaken, having witnessed something supernatural, having his life spared, uh, falls down and cries out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the question. And that's, listen, that's the only question. He is rightly concerned about the one thing that matters. Are you concerned about the one thing that matters? Is the question of your salvation the most important question? And do you know the answer to that most important question? Because it's not a secret. Verse 31 is the answer. Believe. In the Lord Jesus and you will be saved oh, yeah. that's it it's so simple it's so wonderful it's so unexpected that's the summary imperative of the whole New Testament right there what must I do only believe why how can something so seemingly simple be the answer to the ultimate question Again, not because of the faith itself. Everyone has faith in something. You have faith in something. It's not the faith that matters. It's the object of that faith that matters. It's the Lord Jesus part that matters. You don't save yourself with your faith. He saves you. And that's given to you through your faith. And remember, Jesus' power Remember, we talked about this back when we talked about the Reformation. Grace is not a power. Ultimately, grace is a person. We've already seen that Jesus is the power of God. He's also the grace of God. Jesus is God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved, unsought favor to us. He is the message of the whole Bible. We sin. That's our part. God saves. That's his part. And he does it through Jesus. We sin. That sin is a rejection of God. That sin separates us from God. That sin deserves death. The gospel is the wonderful news that God sent his son Jesus to become a man, to take our place, to take our death, to rise again, and in so doing, to buy us back, to redeem us, to reconcile us, and to return us to God. So the gospel is not about you. It's not at all about what you must do to be saved. The gospel is about God and what God has done in Christ to save you. He works. We rest. He pays it all. We are called simply to believe it all. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's grace. God gives us He gives this Roman jailer, probably responsible for the torture and brutality and all kinds of terrible things, he gives this man grace. He gives him what he does not deserve. You may not be a Roman jailer, but you don't deserve it either. And yet, he gives us his very son. And in so doing, he gives us life and relationship with him. What a gift and it is that gift, that grace that is the foundation of the church. It is only God's grace that plants the church in Philippi. And it is only God's grace that plants the church in Woodside. It is only God's grace that sustains the church in Philippi. And it is only God's grace that sustains the church in Woodside. God plants and he preserves. He starts and he sustains. It is his providence. His initiative, His power, and His grace that does all of it. And it's God who gives the growth, 1 Corinthians 3. It is God who builds His church. And that means that this whole church business is from Him and through Him and for Him. It's His church, which then means that we are wonderfully blessed and privileged that we get to be a part of it. It's His And he includes us. This church, again, we're not talking building, remember, we're talking people, you guys, are a gift of God to one another. You're a gift of God uh, to me. Salvation, my wife, my kids, you guys would be kind of next on the list there of God's greatest gifts to me in my life. I'd like a national championship in a couple weeks, um, but you guys are a lot better than that. The church is A gift. Look at what God has done in bringing this strange group of people together. If you can see the wonderful blessing of the church, and if you can then see that it's all from him for his glory and for your good, that will go a long way in producing the gospel-generated joy that we're going to study in Philippians. Guys, it is in the context of the church that this joy flourishes. And that church is a wonderful gift to us of God's wonderful grace. Let's close by thanking him uh, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. Father, we thank you that you treat us so much better than we deserve. Father, we thank you that you do not deal with us according to our sins. Father, if you dealt with us according to our sins, uh, we would all be lost in this instant. Father, but yet here we are, uh, breathing, alive, grace. Here we are, together in a church, singing your praises and hearing your word, grace. Father, here we are, gathered together, surrounded by brothers and sisters who care for us, grace. Father, convince us this church thing is not something you do on Sunday mornings, but that it is a wonderful gift of a family, of brothers and sisters in Christ that we have the privilege of loving and serving and being loved by and served by. And Father, that this wonderful thing that is happening here is all you. Father, it is your providence that we are here. It is your initiative, it's your power, and it's your grace that plans and sustains Woodside Community Church. Father, I simply ask That you would now do what I am incapable of doing. I ask that you would work in our hearts. I pray that you would stir up a great affection um, in us for Jesus, which would then lead to a great affection for the people of Jesus. Father, give us joy. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are facing circumstances like Paul, who in their immediate experiences, Father, everything looks dark and daunting and frightening and scary. Father, set their eyes on the things that are above. Set their eyes on Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would be the church to them. Pray that you would surround them with brothers and sisters in Christ that would bear their burdens with them, that would walk alongside them and love them, carry them and be with them through whatever it is that that they're going through. Father, show us Christ. And we ask and we pray all this in his name. Amen.